According to various sources, Black, Latinx, Asian Pacific Islanders, and indigenous communities, which have borne the brunt of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States, have also received a smaller share of available vaccines. As of May 12th, the CDC reported that race and or ethnicity was known for just over half of the people who have received at least one of the dose of the vaccine. Among this group, 38% were American Indian or Alaska Natives, 28% were Asian, also 28% were Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islanders, 21% were Hispanic or Latinx, 20% were Black, with percentages further decreasing when you look at those who are fully vaccinated. This is troubling, given how hard these communities were hit during the pandemic. While some sources are quick to point to vaccine hesitancy as the main cause for the gap due to history of mistrust in the medical community, others point to lack of access to accurate information and barriers to technology, time, and transportation. In short, issues with how easily people can access the vaccines. To talk more about the racial and ethnic disparities in COVID-19 vaccination rates, we've invited Dr. Giselle Corby-Smith and Dr. Aaron Gerstenmeier to explore the inequities in access to the vaccines among these communities. This conversation was recorded on May 14, 2021, and all the data and information are accurate at the time of recording. This is the final of three episodes we'll be sharing as part of an AMC project funded by the Cooperative Agreement from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Sutton, the Director of Research for AAMC Center for Health Justice. Thank you for tuning in. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Giselle Corby-Smith, the Keenan Distinguished Professor of Social Medicine, Director of the Center for Health Equity Research and Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Medicine. And also Dr. Aaron Gerstenmeier, the Associate Chief Medical Officer at Community of Hope located in Washington, DC. Thanks for joining me and let's dive right in. So excited to be here, Carrie. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> So to begin, um, Black, Indigenous, and Latinx communities have been among the hardest hit during the pandemic. Preliminary data show that these communities are less likely to have received the vaccine thus far. While there seem to be many issues at play here, such as access to the vaccine and vaccine distrust, certainly the fundamental root cause we can point to is structural racism. So the first question is, why do you think we are seeing these differences in vaccine uptake these communities? Um, so I think one of the the main things to kind of, you know, think about and what we think about at Community of Hope and the work that we do is, you know, I think there is um, a varying levels of trust with the healthcare system and with the government in um, overall. You know, I think that when we look at who are the people that have yet to be vaccinated? You know, I think a large proportion of them are younger, um, younger patients. And it's a question of whether or not they're even connected with a healthcare facility or have a provider that they see regularly. And so I think that there are times when if you're not connected with a provider or a healthcare facility in your community, um, then it's a question of where you're going to get information um, and who's going to be your trusted source that you're talking to. 
Yeah, um, Carrie, I'll, I'll just um, extend a bit on what Aaron is, um, is suggesting here. What I have found is that most people, this is vaccine deliberation. They're sort of waiting, looking, seeing what's happening, integrating what their lived experiences um, in the current moment in the pandemic with the collective experience of people of color, black and brown people in this country and globally. Um, and then further integrating that with um, their history of, and their interactions with the healthcare system to make an informed choice, um, to think about what they have experienced and the likelihood that a health system that up until now hasn't cared about, uh, has demonstrated a lack of care of black and brown bodies um, and, and trying to understand how it, this healthcare system, this public health system, could possibly care about them at this moment in time. I think there's skepticism. I think just like any um, innovation, right? We all, we all know about diffusion of innovations. They're gonna be early adopters. And there's, I certainly have seen that in my own patient population. Um, and then there are others that are sort of waiting to see what happens and gradually coming along. I, I spoke recently to a family member who um, just got the vaccine, um, is high risk, and he was, you know, reflecting that he was hesitant and wasn't sure why um, and realized that he just needed to have the information he needed to be able to move forward. So um, to me, this is um, indicative, you know, these are this, this, what we have seen played out in the pandemic is, is the canary, right, for this crazy coal mine around health inequalities. And we have the opportunity now to learn from these lessons um, the other piece of vaccine is, so one is the vaccine uptake, right? People are, that are willing to go forward, you know, roll up their, literally roll up their sleeves and get the vaccine, show up a second time in some cases to get the next shot. But then there's also the distribution. Um, and we have, even though we knew this vaccine was coming at an unprecedented pace, we'd seen how testing inequalities had rolled out we still did not have a race focused or um, um, a vulnerable population focused approach to the distribution. And this is where we have this tension between equality where everybody gets the same thing. We want everybody to have the same opportunity, same, same um, access versus equity, which is having access based on need. Um, and this is what we also saw play out. So there's the uptake and then there's distribution. Having an online system where people you know, can go online and, and it's a free-for-all um, worked exactly the way it was, we expected it to work. Right? <laughs> people that have time and resources to be able to one, have a computer, have um, regular broadband access, spend the time trolling or have, um, uh, have maybe a couple laptops open trolling these sites to find um, uh, a, a vaccine slot early on and um, practice the vaccine tourism, you know, crossing county lines, state lines to be able to find these vaccines. That again is a system based on equality versus equity. Um, and, um, and it played out exactly as any of us who do this work would have expected it to. Thank you, Giselle. And thank you, Aaron, for making some great points. And I want to, um, kind of let's talk a bit more about something that Giselle raised, which is equity versus equality. Um, and you mentioned something, Giselle, about the, the vaccine distribution. 
um, in certain states. Can we talk a little bit more about how states can kind of bake in um, more of this equity focus strategy to ensure that vulnerable populations would have better access to the vaccine? So I'll just, um, I'll say that um, the strategies that we've seen worked are strategies that we know um, have worked in other other areas, and we um, actually saw working around testing. So it's um, both a high-tech and a high-touch approach, ensuring that we're um, we're accessing networks of individuals or organizations, faith-based, community-based, um, federally qualified community health centers that are actively caring and have been caring for the most vulnerable populations throughout this pandemic, have been sort of making stone soup with their limited resources and drawing in and creating networks that can provide care in you know, sometimes a piecemeal way, but sometimes it's the only option for folks. So that network of care that goes beyond our health system and our uh, and our um, public health, our healthcare system and public health system has been critical. That's the ground game that has gotten us beyond the equality versus equity. And being able to, like, my hope is, as we emerge from this pandemic, we'll be we'll learn that we need to continue to engage those networks make sure that um, we're not using a medical solution for a public health problem, right? We're, we're thinking about the broadest way that we can ensure resilience in communities, making sure we have the data to understand what's happening, making sure that we have leaders on the ground that are connected to resources that bridging capital um, between um, local community leaders that understand the felt needs of, of those communities to the resources that are available within public health, our public health system and our healthcare system. And that my, that's my hope is that, okay, we didn't learn from testing, we didn't learn from vaccines. So maybe now we can sort of integrate that learning and, um, and be thinking forward about how we have a system that's more resilient and, and more oriented to the needs of the most vulnerable amongst us. Yeah, I mean, I agree um, with what, Giselle is saying, I think one of the things that we noticed in kind of DC when it start, when we started with the vaccine rollout, you know, starting with a, a centralized vaccine scheduling system, which I think worked a little bit better than the piecemeal ones in other states where you check every single individual CVS or Rite Aid. But what we found is that, you know, when the vaccine rollout came, we tried to have, you know, we did roll out in the federally qualified three, at least initially, the federally qualified health centers initially with it, along with a couple of pharmacies at that time, tried to distribute those throughout the city. But with the centralized scheduling, it seemed that a, the large proportion of those um, appointment slots went to people in the most affluent wards in the district because exactly they had the time, the internet, the four, five, six, seven people who are helping them get an appointment at that time. You know, and I think the, the district has good, done a good job of expanding the number of community partners um, who've been offering and doing vaccination in the city all throughout the city, um, trying to focus on um, some of the most at-risk communities and zip codes to give them prioritization. But now we're at the point of, um, of the next step of getting, you know, we've gotten the number of people who are 
were already interested and ready and avid wonders of the vaccine. Now we have to reach out to the people who are, you know, the deliberators or the people who are just are ready, but like don't know how and don't know where to go. And this is, I think, where you move into, you know, the boots on the ground strategy of when walk-in sites are great at Community of Hope, we have walk-in clinics at, you know, our sites, but that's still somebody who wants to get the vaccine at that time. And so now it's going out into the community, working with the community partners, um, going to the schools as Pfizer has been approved for 12 to 15, and really starting to be like, hey, you want, you're thinking about this, let's talk about it now, let's give you the vaccine now. I think Aaron, make, there are so many important points in what Aaron is raising. I just wanna underscore if I could, Carrie. Um, the first is the data that being able to track what is happening um, and, to make, and to be able to pivot um, at critical time points based on a set of goals. And to me, that is essential. Um, we saw the lack, how the lack of data hindered us in the early part of the pandemic and in terms of who was at risk, who was getting sick, who, and we still have incomplete data. So those data, that data infrastructure is essential and being, and, and monitoring that in any approach to equity, having a transparent data system is gonna be important to understand how and when you need to pivot. Um, second of all, um, you know, he's, you know, elo eloquently applies theory, right? The diffusion of innovation, getting those, we've got those early adopters. We now need to focus on sort of the next level of individuals um, that need support, that need to be able to have these conversations, engage with them, assume that they, they that their decision-making is gonna be in concert with their values and giving them the information that they need to be able to make a decision, not to coerce someone, not to convince someone. Um, we, we have to respect that autonomy and also give it people the information that they need. This, this pandemic has been so highly politicized um, that folks are really kind of sitting on the sidelines like confused. And yet, um, you know, we have people that know what an epidemiologist is. They understand mRNA all of a sudden. So it's also a window for us in medicine and science to really meet people who are interested in, and, and, and really want that information at, um, and, um, and in a way that um, respects their autonomy as well. Oh, these are excellent points. Um, I wanna back up a little bit to something that we mentioned in the beginning. Much of the conversation when we, with the vaccine distribution and much of the pandemic, we've been talking about mistrust. Mistrust, mistrust, there's a, definitely mistrust among communities of color. Giselle, you recently wrote in an article that blanket mistrust has been used to explain disparities in vaccine uptake and is masking under, underlying fundamental inequalities in the system of vaccine distribution. At this point where you're talking about the diffusion of innovation, what are some additional strategies that we can use recognizing that it's not a one size fit all approach to kind of address this idea or this understanding of mistrust, mistrust in the medical system, mistrust in the government and mistrust in the system? So for me, the, the issue of mistrust is real, right? I mean, we've seen that and we see this beyond um, minoritized populations. We've seen this, we see this um, in 
rural America. We see this among white, young white men in rural America in particular. Um, and so, um, and what I would say is that this is not an individual, solely an individual problem. This is a systems problem. And we need to be looking at the systems that we've created that get, have gotten us exactly the results they're, they're intended to get. I mean, that's our systems give us what they're built to give us. And so if we want equitable systems, we need to pull back, recognize the individual nature of decision-making, but also recognize that it happens in a context of the systems of care that, we, um, that we've built. And if we want something different, we need to do something different. There's certainly historical reasons that people might mistrust our um, healthcare systems. Again, our healthcare systems have um, demonstrated over and over again um, by not pivoting, by not shifting, by not making changes that the, 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 the well-being and the lives of black and brown people are not a primary concern. Because if it was, we'd have a different system. Um, and um, so, so for me, that's the fundamental, I, I don't want, mistrust has been sort of thrown out. It's a kind of blame the victim term. And I, it's distressing to me because then it, ob, it uh, obviates the need to make changes within a system. And I want us to be able to look at the system, recognize that mistrust is a symptom and not the driver of the system. And Aaron, could you talk a little bit more about you know, your patient population as well and thinking about the, um, in the district and the strategies, um, thinking about mistrust as well with your patient population? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think when we talk about, you know, a little bit with mistrust in the system, we also have to take a, a look at what the healthcare system is doing in general in those areas. Um, there was a recent article um, that came out in Nature that talked about the life expectancy difference between black and white communities in the district um, and looked at about 17 years as the difference for males in the district uh, and 12 years for the difference in females with the biggest cause of that life expectancy difference being heart disease, cancer um, amongst males, uh, heart disease, cancer, perinatal causes amongst females. And you're looking at those and those are tied to the healthcare system. Those are tied to structural racism in terms of, you know, where our grocery store is located, tobacco um, advertising, you know, access to uh, parks, sidewalks, places where people can exercise. And so, you know, what we want to do is take a look at, you know, the healthcare system as we, as, you know, Giselle mentioned is one of the bigger things that we can do overall but then look at what we can also do on community level. Um, what you know, we at Community Hope can do to, to build trust with our patients, our communities. And part of that is being a presence in those communities. We've been offering um, walk-up testing for the community since you know, June, July um, at you know, no cost for our patients. We've um, you know, had relationships with other community organizations, Martha's Table, which is in the district, providing food resources for patients. We've had teen nights and backpack giveaways at the start of school. And so as an individual you know, organization we're trying to do is how can we show ourselves to be a present in this community, a part of this community, so that 
even if you're not our patient, you know who you are, you have friends who are our patients and you are connected to us and know that you can trust us that, you know, we have kind of the community in mind as we're, we're moving forward. And that to me is just such a beautiful example of demonstrating trustworthiness, right? And the shift from sort of blaming the victim to taking that onus of responsibility on a healthcare system to show up when you don't want something, to be there and to be a contributing member of the community and to demonstrate that, you know, when we are in a community disaster or crisis, we're going to be here. We're here in the good times. We're here when it's, it's hard as well. Um, so thank Aaron. I just want to thank you for, for that. Yes, thank you, Aaron, and thank you, Giselle, for um, these insights. Um, I do want to really talk about um, some lessons learned. Both of you have been on the front lines and doing the groundwork uh, long before the pandemic. So could you please offer some lessons learned to our listeners on this topic or anything applicable? I would say, um, as we've seen the different phases of the pandemic, um, and the impact on um, historically marginalized communities that, um, as I said, my hope is that we can learn that we need to move beyond sort of individual behavior and think about how we can reorient um, our systems to um, focus on ways that we can ensure everyone has the opportunity to live a healthy life based on their needs. We can think about how and be intentional about how we connect those systems um, so that we have a, a more robust network as opposed to the net that we saw and all the fault lines that we saw between healthcare and public health um, and community-based organizations in those networks. Um, I think we have a real opportunity now. We can't let this, you know, what, what was, uh, I'm not a PR person, but it's don't let a good disaster or a good crisis go to waste. Well, this has been probably one of the best crises, <laughs> in, if, depending on how you define best crisis, that any of us have had it, experienced in our lifetime. And so how do we use what we um, have experienced to ensure um, everybody has an opportunity to live a healthy life? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I think the you know, the other thing to think about from, you know, an, an individual level or even what we're realizing, you know, at Community of Hope is, is more and more how kind of other connections, other relationships with organizations citywide, you know, um, can have a big role. So we've we've started to have lift rides to assist patients in going um, to get their vaccine. We also have it for lift rides for our prenatal patients if they need to go and get, you know, to the hospital for sonograms, things like that, things that we don't offer for our prenatal patients on site. Um, you know, the relationships with different, um, food markets, everything that we can bring to our communities. You know, we, for a number of years, there were a, a farmer's market that was brought to, you know, the community in Ward 8 for our patients to be able to go and, and shop at. Um, we have the, the larger healthcare-based, larger structural changes, but then 
the the way that individual FQHCs, community health centers, FB or faith-based organizations can collaborate and work together, you know, to help mitigate some of the issues that we're seeing as we're working on these larger structural changes um, and really leveraging those two things together. No, I, I totally agree. So do either of you have thoughts on how the academic medicine community can be part of this solution um, to improve access to the COVID-19 vaccine, um, improve the equity in, in systems, um, many of the things that we've talked about today, but how can the academic medicine community be part of this solution? Well, what I've seen um, throughout the pandemic is um, a couple ways. Um, the, the first is, at least within North Carolina, many of our healthcare, academic healthcare systems actually have a footprint that's broader than just the, the sort of main campus. The, the, um, we, we're actually in, a, uh, have entities across the state. And so there is a real opportunity to have a really big systems view of equity and, and influencing um, and, and partnering with communities across the state. The other that I would say is um, uh, academic health centers often have researchers that can help um, local uh, entities uh, and also our public health systems uh, think about their data and support them in um, understanding their data and how to bring that to bear in the pandemic. Um, and, and that's critically important. And then finally, the clinical systems and clinical um, uh, um, the ability to stand up, um, pop up, um, uh, or um, mobile units that can support testing, vaccine distribution, local, and support local organizations um, and partner with them is one of the things that I've seen happen over and over again within our healthcare system as we sort of shifted to really think about equity and um, and putting the needs and interests and, and of those most vulnerable communities with at the center of how we deploy the care. So um, I think academic health centers have actually quite a lot, quite often have a very important role to play in partnership with all these other entities. Um, and it's about bringing those um, and those uh, other systems of care together and often can take a leadership role in doing that. I agree. I also think, you know, as Giselle mentioned, a lot of the um, larger academic centers do have a really large footprint, do have primary care providers and networks spread across the city or across the state. Um, and I think a role of that is also, as we think of equity is, you know, getting the, the vaccine in the hands of primary care providers. Um, you know, so much of the time, the due to concerns about wastage, you know, concerns about obviously initially when we were so limited on the amount of vaccine, places were only vaccinating a couple of days and scheduling way out and everything. And, and we need to get into a system where the primary care providers have the vaccine. And when a patient is in there and the patient is ready, the patient can get it, you know, without we're, we're doing Lyft and Uber, and that's obviously great, but Patients don't always have the time to travel to another site to get it. Um, and so, you know, leveraging those connections to be able to get it into the hands of the primary care provider that 
you know, the patient's trust um, and just kind of eliminate that extra burden in terms of access is a big thing. Um, you know, I, I would say another thing that, that we came across is as we rolled out vaccination, it took a, a large amount of staff for us to be able to roll in out vaccination. And these were staff that we took out of the clinic. And so it, the FQHCs, a lot of, you know, community health centers, we don't have staff to spare. And so if we're taking staff from the clinic to do vaccination, which is incredibly important, it means that we're limiting patient care and patient access to the regular care that they need. Um, we actually had volunteers from one of the health centers in DC who helped us that uh, gave a regular schedule. Um, these are a couple of nursing students that we have had and it freed up the, our medical assistants to get back into the clinic. So we were able to do both um, without limiting either of them. We were still able to have vaccine clinics while you know, leveraging or still having access to primary care that you know, all of our patients so, um, so importantly need, particularly because you know, the number of visits that happened during the pandemic was significantly lower. Um, and so you know, using those, those couple of things in addition to leveraging their own staff for pop-ups for um, going out into the communities, you know, uh, depending on where the, um, where the health centers are, a, lo a lot of these academic centers have, you know, staff members who are members of, you know, the communities that they serve and, and going out and talking to them and um, leveraging those connections too. And so I think, you know, providing those supports, which really just helps to expand who has the ability to give the vaccine um, and getting people where they are, you know, when they're ready um, and eliminating that barrier is so important. I, I wanted to add a couple lessons learned um, um, and, and sort of opportunities on the horizon. Um, based, uh, Aaron's comments just um, sort of triggered a couple things for me. The first is um, community health workers. We've been able to see what an important bridge community health workers have been in this, that bridge between these systems of care. Um, and I think we need to ensure, you know, a sort of a universal support for them within sort of our state and local policies, making sure that we have a way to, to that they're trained consistently, um, certified, integrated into our healthcare systems um, and paid appropriately and the coverage for their services um, reimbursed as well. They've been sort of such an important part of being able to reach um, uh, early, particularly early on in, in the pandemic, people who are patients at home who couldn't come out, uh, so many of us couldn't come out of our homes um, and continue to be a lifeline in terms of having that continued conversation um, and helping people get the information they need to be able to make the decision about the vaccine that's in accordance with their values. Um, and then the other caution, I think, and or, and or opportunity and potential role for, certainly as a primary care provider, I think of, but also our healthcare systems and academic healthcare systems is, all of this deferred care that has happened over the last year 
will come to roost. And it'll be, again, an, a, a situation, we're already seeing it around mental health, where there's, it's disproportionately impacting certain communities that have been historically excluded from, um, from care. And so uh, we need to be thinking now, the mental health crisis, that's the tsunami that we're about to crest is going to devastate um, our children, our um, communities that have, you know, have uh, had the vicarious trauma of the murders of black and brown um, men, women, and children. Um, this, is, uh, this is not a small thing. And our, health, our mental health care system wasn't ready <laughs> before the pandemic to be able to address this. Certainly, um, uh, we, we will need to shore that up um, and think about ways to partner again with academic healthcare systems to be able to, to provide the, that kind of care and, uh, and community-based organizations, faith-based organizations that are already providing that care. Once again, um, definitely great points shared by you, Giselle and Aaron. Um, and so I want to kind of ask one final question. Um, given all that we've discussed today, um, do you have a message of encouragement or hope or optimism for the future? Um, given that we are still in this pandemic and, and thinking about where we're going um, moving forward? I, I think one of the things that, you know, we're thinking about is last March of 2020, we had to stop and change how we provided care. Starting virtual care meant different outreach to, to patients, staffing, things like that. You know, and I think one of the things that we're taking from this is that we can now leverage some of the lessons that we've learned during this as a way to expand our reach to, you know, our patients and to the community as a whole. You know, as you talk about kind of the, the looming mental health and the current mental health crisis, um, you know, we're looking at, well, how can we use virtual care for our patients as a way to expand access so that we have the ability to reach patients who do want to come into the clinic or who virtual care is obviously not an option, but then those who really need virtual care because, you know, they know the time that it's going to take and they have the ability and it's, it's easier than, you know, taking the time to come into the clinic and wait for your appointment and, and everything like that. Um, and so what we're looking at is, you know, how can we now leverage this into providing new, um, services for our patients, whether through virtual mental health services, whether through virtual, you know, primary care, chronic care, prompt care, all of those services of how can we, you know, use what we've learned to, you know, to provide more services and benefits for our patients. The other thing is that it, it also allowed us to take a look at care coordination services, outreach that we can do to our patients, expand our connection to the community, um, and just continue to kind of build even more trust in the communities that we serve so that uh, we can reach more people and people who, you know, may not have a, another primary care provider that they've been um, seeing thus far. So I'll, I'll say in terms of the, what, what I've, one of the, the bright spots for me in this, the, silver, the COVID silver lining, right, in this really dark 
<laughs> dark cloud of a, that's lasted <laughs> over a year um, is I, I'm reflecting on a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King, um, one of the many quotes of his that I love, but I think is particularly germane for um, how we're emerging and if we're intentional, how we can sort of mitigate inequalities going forward. And he talks about the sense that all life is interrelated. Um, and I think that's been very much um, evident for anybody that's willing to look and that all are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Um, and I think if we're able to be and to see how that's happened, it's there's so many, this, it's so obvious. Um, we see that locally, we see that nationally, we see this globally. Um, and with that in mind, um, you know, real, that realization that this is not just a black or brown problem, this is a problem for all of us that we need to be able, um, we need to get our arms around because we're all impacted by, by this. And that, that to me is one of the potential silver linings if we're intentional about how we use that moving forward. Thank you, Giselle. Thank you, Erin, for joining us today on this episode of Beyond the White Coat. And we definitely want to thank you for everything that you're doing to serve your communities during this time. Um, for our listeners, if anyone is not vaccinated and you still have questions about the COVID-19 vaccine, please talk to trusted community members, your doctors, your nurses, local pharmacists, community health workers, vaccinated families, and friends or you can visit cdc.gov or your local community health department website for the latest information about COVID-19, COVID-19 vaccines, and where to access them. Thank you again for joining us. This is a project of the Association of American Medical Colleges, funded by a cooperative agreement from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, improving clinical and public health outcomes through national partnerships to prevent and control emerging and re-emerging infectious disease threats, Award number 1NU50CK000586-01-2022. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is an agency within the Department of Health and Human Services. The information included in this podcast does not necessarily represent the policies of the CDC or HHS and should not be considered an endorsement by the federal government. If you enjoyed today's episode of Beyond the White Coat, you might also be interested in A Different Kind of Leader, a podcast hosted by Dr. Giselle Corby-Smith that captures insights from diverse leaders in healthcare, public health, and academic settings so that our organizations are in a stronger position to grow, innovate, and meet the challenges of our day. Learn more at differentkindofleader.com. Episodes of season three are now streaming wherever you listen to podcasts.